2: Hi, it's Kara. Quick note before today's show stick around after the main interview for a special preview of Jason Del Rey's new podcast, Land of the Giants. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor at large of Recode. You may know me as someone who never uses Facebook, definitely has used me, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we're going to play a panel discussion from the San Francisco premiere of The Great Hack, a new Netflix documentary about the Cambridge Analytica scandal. I talked to the movie's director, Kareem Amir, its producer, Pedro Kos, the former COO of Cambridge Analytica, Julian Wheatland, and venture capitalist, Roger McNamee. The Great Hack is now available on Netflix. The discussion was recorded live after we watched the movie at the Letterman Theater in the Presidio of San Francisco. So let's go there now to hear my conversation with the creators of The Great Hack. Well, that was a laugh riot, huh? That was great. <laughs> Last night, uh, I got to interview Megan Rapino. That was really fun. This was not quite as fun. So I'm going to bring up uh, our panel. Oh, Roger's already here, uh, hovering behind me. Um, why don't we all come up? Roger McNamee. Woo-hoo! Julian. Thank you. Pedro. Come on up. And Kareem. Thank you. So um, this was a tremendous, I really enjoyed this. So I've been covering this stuff for years and i uh, there's a lot of stuff I didn't know that was in it. It was really interesting, especially um, Brittany Kaiser, which I thought was really interesting. So I actually want to start with you, Julian, because I don't know what you think from this thing. I don't know if you think Andrew Nix is a victim or a hero or if Brittany is, or if you think Chris is. So I'd love to get, your take, and, and Julian Julian Whitehead, correct? Wheatland. Wheat, Wheatland, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, was the COO of Cambridge Analytica. So I'd lo- I can't tell what you think happened here.
3: That's quite a big question, well, actually. <laughs> um,
2: why don't you give me a big answer?
3: I'll, I'll try. So I was uh, the chief operating officer and the chief finance officer mm-hmm. of the company for, for from the beginning of 2015 until early in 2018 um, when uh, Alexander stepped down and, and I took over, but really with the with, with the aim of closing the company down at that point. So what I think was that the company made some uh, significant mistakes uh, when it came to its use of data. They were ethical mistakes. Um, and I think that part of the reason that that, that, that happened was that we spent a lot of time concentrating on not making regulatory mistakes. And so, uh, uh, for the most part, we didn't, as far as I can tell, make any regulatory mistakes. But we got almost distracted by ticking those boxes of um, fulfilling the regulatory requirements. And it felt like, well, once that was done, then we'd done what we needed to do. And we forgot to pause and think about ethically what uh, uh, what was going on. So that was part of it then there's a whole other part of it which i'm sorry that was the part of it to do with the data analytics and the digital targeting and mm-hmm. the trump campaign and the cruise campaign and and commercial work as well then there was a whole other part of it which was political campaigns elsewhere around the world and that was really very different work uh, it was very strange work it was on the ground doing a lot of research trying to understand people and view them as groups rather than the one-to-one, the attempt at Mm one-to-one targeting for digital. And I think that, well, I'll be honest with you, there was lots of stuff this movie um, about what was being uh, promoted there and and proposed there that was news to me. Mm -hmm. And certainly stuff on the undercover video with Alexander Nix, which I'm almost certain was never done, I don't think the company ever had any capability to do it. And I think he just got carried away. And if you ask me honestly, I think they both looked drunk in that undercover video.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so they didn't mean to say it? Uh,
3: I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't answer whether they meant to say it or not. The company didn't provide those services. Don't think it could have provided those services. And they looked drunk to me. All
2: right. So, so drunk. Um, All right. Okay. But,
3: and then th- I suppose the other thing I would say about Alexander is that um, Alexander's favorite expression is never let the truth get in the way of a good story. And he is, to say the very least, a, a consummate overseller mm-hmm. of services. So I think, you know, what you heard him there was trying to take credit for the Brexit result, for example, mm-hmm. without actually saying it or taking credit, um, but with a nod and a wink. Um, right. And also, I think, you know, in the Trump campaign, we took too much credit, more credit than we, we warranted. And there was a reason for that, and that's because we thought Trump was going to lose. And so we had started a PR campaign in advance of the election to um, try and explain, well, you know, it would have been worse if we hadn't been there and we didn't choose the candidate and things like that. Right. And, and then, of course, he won. And um, that All groundwork right, so came I'm back minute, to bite us. You.
2: So you're basically saying you're stupid and you're liars, which I find like, it's kind of interesting to think about that...
3: That i'm fairly sure i didn't say that no actually. no
2: but I, i'm trying to i, I can't get what you're saying so that you didn't you he was overselling it so he was lying about the capabilities but he didn't do the bad things that he said he did that's correct is that correct
3: uh, i can't t- tell you what bad things he did or didn't do but when it came to what he said sh- on shipping th- girls from the ukraine to sri right. lanka for a I don't believe he did that. Right. And, and, and I don't think that um, okay. we had any capability to, to do, do that. that. Or, so or, they or, or indeed, that's... that there was any desire of anyone else in the company to do that.
2: All right. So, Kareem, you spent a lot of time in the piece trying to paint a very powerful company that did have these capabilities. How, when you finished this, what did, you, what did the... Because one of the parts that I thought was the Andrew Nix testimony, which I'd forgotten about that he made, was the victimization of Cambridge Analytica to being thrown under the bus, essentially... For other more powerful players, which I think Julian talked about, that it was about a bigger thing uh, in the movie. How do you look at Cambridge Analytica in this? Is it is it a, just a useful idiot that, that managed to overstate itself,
4: or what? I I, I don't think Cambridge is a useful idiot. I think Cambridge is a was a sophisticated company that has a, a history in psyops that we don't. Its mother company, at least, SCL Group, definitely had a history in psyops, psychological operations. <laughs> Uh, and ran. Efficient. Sorry, louder. SCL Group, the mother company of Cambridge, has a history in psyops, running operations in different parts of the world to try and you know win the battle for the hearts and minds of different. Which
2: co- people. which governments have done for many years? Well,
4: which governments subsidize? Which our tax right. money subsidizes, right? right? But so, it's, it's
2: not such, an. Un- it, it's been done since the beginning of time. This kind yeah,
4: of yeah, well, it's it's always been done. But I think that the the. the sophistication and weaponization of it to a far more exponential level of power has happened with the advent of that mixed with some of the power of Silicon Valley. So Silicon Valley's government contracts that allow for some of this testing to happen. Oftentimes, this testing is happening in third world countries. And but
2: what was your impression from this of Cambridge Analytica? Did my my impression, there, my or?
4: impression of Cambridge Analytica is that Cambridge Analytica is involved was involved in a lot of things that are ethically very, you know, I think morally bankrupt. And when you look back at some of them, for sure. But to blame Cambridge Analytica. Is I think a little short-sighted because Cambridge Analytica is not the reason why our democracy is for sale. Well,
2: I think that we
4: we agreed to that. We allowed for this country to have the largest marketplace when it comes to elections. And if you're an aspiring entrepreneur in the election business, this is the mega ship. And the American public has allowed that, has supported that, and has encouraged that. So you can't blame companies for wanting to profit off the fact that we've commoditized our election process. You can't blame companies for, for then realizing that our technology platforms have designed this incredible system whereby we have access to so many people's data and have inoculated people to not realize that their data can be used against them. And so I think that the idea of blaming someone for the discontent that we're in is, uh, is challenging for me because I think that we're all complicit in building it and I think that companies like Facebook are far more problematic to me than even Cambridge Analytica. Right. There, there would be no Cambridge Analytica without Facebook.
2: Right. There was, I think one of the most interesting quotes was actually, Julian's. there was always going to be a Cambridge Analytica. It just was, unfortunately for me, Cambridge Analytica, which was the idea that, that they were taking advantage of what was already existing. Um, and all kinds of companies do that. All kinds of campaigns do that uh, to to manipulate election results now. Roger, how did you look at what was here? because i do I do think there wasn't a whole lot about Facebook's behavior in this because since they've been doing this, they've sort of now seems to have slipped out of it now at this point. Their stock is at an all time high. They paid what I called a parking ticket to the FTC. Um, they are enjoying, once again, Wall Street celebrating what they're doing. And they've made changes, of course, to their behavior. But it seems as if they have slipped out of it. Let me start with Roger and then Pedro.
5: So I think this film is incredibly important because what Cambridge Analytica and the U.K. Brexit referendum and the U.S. election and the interplay with Facebook demonstrates is... It's like this tiny little example of what is a systemic problem with data in our society. Mm-hmm. That essentially our human experience, as uh, the professor from Harvard, Shoshana Zuboff likes to say, our human experience is being converted into data, then run through machine learning and being used to then manipulate the choices available to us and through that manipulating our behavior. And that can be done in any aspect of our lives and we were willing to go along with it right up until the moment when it affected the outcome in what should have been democratic elections Mm -hmm. and so to me the significance of the story is that this is the one that finally got people to pay attention and in my mind i look at this and the important lesson is we have not done one thing not one thing to prevent this from morphing into greater and greater problems. I mean, if you sit there and you look at what Facebook is doing with Libra, which is its so-called cryptocurrency, which is an attempt to displace reserve currencies around the world. If you look at what Facebook is doing with sidewalk labs with, which is its smart cities initiative, that is essentially an effort to apply the matrix or minority report to real cities. And, you know, It's not just that we haven't learned anything yet. We're still at the point where the problems are compounding. Mm -hmm. And I would say it's not just the stocks are at all-time high. Regulators around the world are struggling to even have the correct vocabulary for dealing with the problems. That we continue to view our relationship with platforms as we give them a little bit of personal data They give us a tremendously valuable service and do a little ad targeting. And that may have been true five or 10 years ago. It is definitely not true today. The data we give them is less than one-tenth of 1% of what they know about us. They have a data voodoo doll, which is a complete digital representation of our lives. And with it, they can manipulate our behavior. And the data we give them is literally irrelevant. This is all about the fact that your bank can sell your data Credit card receipts can be sold, your health data, your uh, location data. You're tracked endlessly and everywhere. And we've allowed all this to go on for reasons that to me make absolutely no sense. And again, we were ignorant, right? And it's okay to let something happen when you don't know. But now we know. And thanks to this movie, we have a really crystal example of it and... You know, if we're going to learn something from this, right? I mean, if we're going to have to have gone through this experience, let's at least learn something and not do it again.
2: So where do you feel we are? Pedro, where do you feel? Because just, again, this week, the FTC settled with YouTube over children, data around children, and with Facebook over breaking a decree that they had agreed to in 2011. So when you have stuff like this, look, here we are. We've gotten this lesson have have our regulators especially in this country cuz that's who's responsible for these US largely US based companies have they learned their lesson or did they ha- I don't I feel like the FTC was w- asleep at the wheel for a decade with Google and everyone else and now that they've woken up they don't have staff they don't have funding they don't have the political will to do something about it
6: yeah but and um, political will starts with us and if we're right. not asking those questions they're not going to act upon that. And I think one of the things, as as Roger said, there is a, you know, when I came into this, I was complete, I didn't know anything. Um, and I had a deficit of language. I didn't understand the space. To me, it was this black box, this magic box. That, oh, I can go online and connect and mm-hmm. and great. And, it, it, you know, it it I get instant gratification for a lot of things. But when what I needed to do was kind of peel back and learn at least what questions to ask because we don't even have that. And I think we wanted to to approach this in a way where we can at least begin to tackle and have a conversation because we're not even having that conversation yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for us, it was very important to to spark that and to ask the questions and the ethical questions that I think are desperately needed to be asked.
2: Right. So Karim, when you're thinking about wanting to to do that, to to create this question, what do you want people to do from watching this? I think I think what one of the things that I find really interesting is this is going to be appear on Netflix, correct, yes. which is run by Reed Hastings, who was on the board of Facebook and has since left the board of Facebook yes. for reasons unknown. What were they trying to do here, and what were you trying to do here?
4: well, uh, it's important to know that you know this film when we in- initially began it with Netflix, it was not about this topic, mm-hmm. so it was about actually the Sony hack it had nothing to do with this, and so Netflix has allowed us to kind of shift course as we started looking at this word hack and realizing that the hack that was more interesting was not physical hacks that were happening to infrastructure or places, but actually the hack of the human mind. And so we became really obsessed with trying to look at how we could show how people's minds had been hacked and changed and how we could change people's minds and the vulnerability that's amongst us. But the problem we faced was one that I think you know this entire conversation faces, which is, you know, Pedro was just alluding to, is that there's a deficit of language, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially, you know, the only thing I can compare it to is similar to the environmental movement, which you know, many people in this community are very familiar with. In the early days of environmental movement, there the people weren't using the words global warming. We didn't have these words. We didn't know what to call the phenomena. yet people were feeling the anxiety of the planet. Now, the thing that the environmental movement had that we don't have here was that at least you could show, the imagery of the wreckage sites, right? So if we're, you know, as data has surpassed oil, as we mentioned in the film, when we were living in the advent of oil, when there was an oil wreckage site, you could see the spillage, right? You could see the marine life destroyed. You could see that image of, you know, a bird barely able to fly because of the, the, the you know, oil. The, covered, the, in the oil. covered in oil. And that image could transcend language and travel the world, right? We have had all of these data breaches, these hacks, these big headlines yet we don't have the imagery and so part of our task became similar to what David Carroll says in the film is how do you make the invisible visible and so we really wrestled with that for a while and it took a combination of things one was finding characters as we always do in a verite style of filmmaking who can inhabit the story people who you feel are you know are jumping off a cliff into this world who who can take you into the stakes of the conversation, um, and we found that with David Carroll who were the, who here he was a person saying, I'm not going to wait for the Mueller report or whatever reports out there. I want to figure out what what do I get to know about myself, and was just asking simple questions about data transparency and put himself into the ring to ask that. You also had someone like Carol Codwaller who was you know obsessing in the journalistic endeavors of figuring out what happened and what do we have the right to know and and how do we hold power accountable? Um, And then it was important that you had people who were coming out of uh, from the inside of these places, people like Chris Wiley, people like Brittany Kaiser, and even people like
3: Julian, who Mm -hmm. did not have to agree to be in this documentary. No, I'm
2: going to ask him next. Julian, why did you decide to be in this documentary?
3: You asked me uh, earlier on what I thought of the company and there was one bit which I didn't get to which okay. was that th- there were 120 people in the company that were clever innovative creative thought that they were doing great work believed in the work that they were doing sincere people and they all lost their jobs from this and they, them, right and they all got tarnished and they all got right. tarnished with that undercover video mm-hmm. and I wanted to speak up for them as much as anything. The other thing is that I think that there are lessons I've learned a huge amount through all of this. There are lessons that I've taken away from this that I want to talk about Mm -hmm. because I don't want want there to be other Cambridge Analyticas. I don't want us to think that the problem is just Facebook. The problem is Facebook. But every company is a data company today. Mm -hmm. And how that data is ethically managed needs to spread through
1: all companies.
2: We're going to take a quick break now, but we'll be back in a minute to this conversation with the creators of the new documentary, The Great Hack.
1: Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest
7: level. Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you.
2: So when you were talking about the, the, it, that it, there were lots of lots of people that worked at Cambridge that weren't part of this, it's the same thing at these companies now, at Google and Facebook and other companies that aren't part of that. How do you sort that out when there's so much money being made and so much opportunity to take advantage of this data? I have a theme I'm thinking about writing about this week, that most of civilization is a cheap date to these companies, that they get a map you get a map and some email and something else and you think that's gr- that's a great trade when in fact it's probably the worst trade you've ever made. How do you get that within the companies? You were running one of these companies. Yeah. Um, and obviously you were you were surprised by that video, for example. And it, it killed the company. That video killed the company.
3: Yeah, it did. It did. And so I think... What's missing, and 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 again, I'm just going to stress, I divorce it from the likes of Facebook and Google because I think they require a different solution. Mm-hmm. I mean, to be honest with you, I would take Facebook and recognize it as being the monopoly util- utility that it is, mm-hmm. that people can't leave and should be regulated as such. But for the rest of, let's call the tech community and ordinary companies, the controls and management processes need to be set up internally such that Every time there's a new data source, every time there's a new way of analyzing, every time there's a new technique that can be used, that it gets evaluated as to whether or not it's in in, in alignment with the ethical objectives, clearly stated ethical objectives of the company, and that that is reviewed up to the board level. And it's not left for the individual engineer or technologist Such danger to do
2: at WhatsApp, not making it viral or something like that. I say the same thing over and over again because I'm trying to get people to repeat it over and over again within Silicon Valley, which is if you can think of your product as an episode of Black Mirror, don't make it. Like yet, like start to think about how you could not make it an episode of Black Mirror.
4: I don't think anybody wakes up in Silicon Valley, and I think this is important for this audience. Right, we're not here to just scold the Valley,
2: right? You know, I don't think anybody. That's what I'm here for. But we, go ahead.
4: But but I don't think I don't, I don't think anyone wakes up in Silicon Valley and says, "How am I going to wreck democracy today?" Like, I don't think that's like a. If they if they are, then you know. Well, there's one know. guy, but go ahead. But, but but you know, so 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 I think it's like, how do we get here? We get here from the place that that, that this that this culture of move fast and break things, and that we could just innovate and there's no cost to Mm -hmm. that innovation is just fucking false. Like, sorry, call it what it is. Some of the smartest people in the world live in this community, and you can't call yourself out and realize that this culture has gone haywire mm-hmm. and that no culture ever has self-regulated it just doesn't happen because human humanity which some people may have skipped in the focus of just math and tech and science you know those that humanity class where you learned about hubris right you know and ego and how it's just that thing that every culture and civilization has and has always been the thing that broke every man it still exists, and, and that's a thing that we have yeah. to hold accountable in, the, in, in this city. I don't know, is doing, doing her <laughs> part in helping to do that, but I think it takes a community to have this conversation and say, it doesn't matter how we got here. It doesn't matter if Facebook and Cambridge Analytica were working together in cahoots with the Russians. That, that doesn't matter. What matters is there's a wreckage site, and how do we fix it? And I think it should be treated the same way you look at natural disasters. When there's a natural disaster that hits a community, what happens? People band together. And they start working again. They don't worry about whose fault it was that the doors didn't work. They just start trying to fix it. Well, and except, I don't see that urgency.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. That That is absolutely true. But, Roger, why don't you talk about this? Because, you know, I did a big, long interview with Mark Zuckerberg that he probably shouldn't have done. Um, but I couldn't get him to understand consequence. I, I, it was, we spent a lot of time going back and forth about whose. And he saw it as a blame thing. And I was saw it as... If you make something bad, you have to understand how you made it so you can fix it. So it was a very different, the points of view were very off. And, and it was interesting to see Alexander Nix here because he felt like he was a victim of this versus that he had any cause, any, he was any kind of player. Roger, talk about that concept because, you know, he, he that's a famous Facebook, move fast and break things, which they've changed to move fast and create stable infrastructure, which is less problematic I guess Um, but that word break I remember when they did it at the time when I went and saw it on it was this was plastered on the walls of facebook all oh, they had all kinds of sayings and stupid stuff like that most of these companies well, do it wasn't but i remember them. saying break like and they were like yeah break and i'm like break is bad and <laughs> it was it was like a debate so you were there yeah but
5: it Did you wasn't think just this was it nifty? wasn't just them it was a broad notion of yeah. you know in 2003 2004 finally the limits of moore's law of Metcalfe's law, the things that prevented you from making global universal consumer products evaporated. So suddenly the cost of creating startups went way down. So the barriers to entry went way down and everything became about eliminating friction. Mm -hmm. The notion was if you wanted to dominate globally, you had to move faster than anyone else, which also meant you had to move faster than the human reaction time or regulator reaction time, or critic reaction time. The notion was you would blow by everything. And that was something that I think came in with the PayPal mafia. So this Mm -hmm. is Peter Thiel and and, uh, Reid
2: Hoffman Hoffman. and
5: and, uh, Elon Mm -hmm. Musk as well. Mm -hmm. That they came in and they brought this philosophy, and it was so spectacularly successful, so quickly. And the issues took a long time to show up. You know, there were glimmers all over the place of problems, but you didn't see, you didn't have anything quite like the 2016 election or like, the, the, uh, like Brexit that focused everybody's attention on one thing. And my observation about all of this is that I think it's time for a forklift replacement of the culture that essentially Silicon Valley has to remember that it spent 50 years in the business of empowering the people who use technology. And now it's in the business of treating the people who use it as a source of fuel, right? We're not the customer. We're not even the product. We're a source of data that isn't used to improve something for us. It's used to manipulate whole populations. And in my mind, that is morally bankrupt, and I do not believe it can be fixed. And I think the way you get out of this is the way you always get out of tech problems, which is you create an alternative universe with a different value system, and you give people choices, There's no, you're not gonna lose the things you like about these products. They're not gonna go away. You shouldn't be afraid of change. What we should be doing is asking the question of why isn't this stuff designed to make my life better? Because it could be. In fact, I think that would be a bigger business opportunity because all the stuff you're doing today is still economically valuable. And there's millions of things they don't do because those things don't fit into the soil. So you wanna switch out out the the
2: Soylent Green as people? Idea of things. That's what it, that's what you're just talking about. People are fuel.
5: In, in this, I'm, I'm in, making in the, a
2: really old Charlton Heston reference. Right, but <laughs> in the
5: current model, that's yeah. right. And yeah. and and the thing is, again, Silicon Valley exists in an ecosystem globally, which sits there and says the only constituency that matters is the shareholder, and the only thing that a management should care about are metrics. Well, the reality is ethics doesn't stand a prayer in that environment because ethics, by definition, is the willingness to subordinate a metric to a higher value. I think that we have a problem in business culture broadly. I mean, in a world where Wells Fargo Bank, a local bank here, you know, took money out of the accounts of millions of account holders without their knowledge, where, you know, you you had the banks generally bankrupting the entire economy and getting away with it. I mean, the Silicon Valley is not alone any more than Cambridge Analytica was alone. This is a pervasive issue. And so, I just think we have to decide what we want capitalism to be. What do we want our economy to be? Because this, if this is it, if this is the best we can do, I mean, that's really disappointing. All right, disappointing. so this,
2: one of the things about this movie that I did see, although I, I was riveted to how you got not just Julian, but uh, Brittany Kaiser to talk. I'd love to know how to do that. But first, one of the things, that, she's a, wow. <laughs> oh, wow, I just want to say. Um, I'd love to know what you think of her, because I can't tell again.
3: I'm not saying that here.
2: Okay, all right, okay. Yes, you are. Uh, so this worked. The great hack worked. Like, that, that's what I came away from it. It's like everyone's sort of finger-pointing and saying, this is a mess, is a mess, but it, it worked. It, you know, what Steve Bannon was doing originally when he was an investor, he wanted to break everything, which he used these tools to do so. Um, that was. It is his philosophy about that. How do you look at that? Because really what you're painting is a picture of success in that there's no repercussions. You're painting a picture of the damage. But what are you hoping to do?
4: Uh, What are we hoping to do? I think what we're hoping to do is, you know, I think that one of the problems is that people in the UK and the US believe that democracy is some God-given right. That it just kind of comes from the sky, and it's just like most people in this audience are just born with a democracy, so you just assume it's always going to be there. Okay. And the problem is, democracy isn't a god-given right; it's very fragile, and societies are fragile. And having come between the United, immigrating to this country, and, and having lived between the United States and Egypt, and our previous film that Pedro and I and uh, and Gerilyn and Jahan made about Tahrir Square, illustrated is the fragility of that democracy. I think right now we're witnessing another kind of fragility. Um, and I think that for us, it was important to express that in this film. Uh, that fragility we've seen from the pendulum of technology swinging to the other direction. In Tahrir Square, we saw you know, the tools of technology be heralded as these democratizing tools that would just catalyze freedom. And then we saw them swing the other direction, and no one in Silicon Valley was taking credit when they were being used by authoritarian governments or being used for ISIS recruitment, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think... What we found here is that there is a fragility of the notion of democratic co- governments in face of monopolistic tech platforms. Mm-hmm. There just is, you know, who has more power, you know, when, when someone sits a senator or Mark Zuckerberg, you know, and oh, Mark
2: Zuckerberg, right? so it's hand like, hand how many hand constituents
4: hand is Zuckerberg? At, right. There's a fragility in the notion of, of truth when we have weaponized information systems. Right. Right. And then I think there's a fragility that I don't know how to solve for, and I'd love to hear from from people who work in this, which is the fragility of this the quote-unquote shared values that we subscribe to as a society, as a democracy, when everyone's living in their own personal reality. And the platform is incentivizing that confirmation bias constantly and getting to the point where the platforms may actually be incentivizing the polarization of American society. No one's saying anyone designed this. No engineer sat in a room and said, hey, how can we make people more neurotic? I don't believe that that's how it happened. But the point is we're here and that's what's continuing to happen. So the question is, whose balance sheet do these societal losses show up on?
2: Well, it's similar to cigarettes or anything else. Just one second. I want to ask Pedro a question first. So how did you get these people? Because in a lot of ways, you're talking, whatever you think of Brittany, she's talking, Chris is talking. When I do stories there's always one person. I remember there was one person in Uber. We had a very tough story about stealing medical records of a, of a rape victim of an Uber, so who's was an Uber driver. And it was one person within the company who couldn't take it. Uh, and it was really interesting. And I remember the conversations, I can't live with myself. Like, they had lived with themselves and benefited mightily from being at Uber, but I remember that. Like, it was that moment of of. Turning someone who, I wasn't trying to turn them, but it was a really interesting discussion. These people, like, look, Brittany, for example, is a really complex character. I'm not sure what to think of her. Like, I don't know what her whole jam is going on, and I can't tell. I didn't even know if he was just telling the truth about her parents. Like, I was sort of like, what is she, lies almost continually. About but there's truth in there at the same there's there's also truth. She was obviously there. She obviously has the emails, she was obviously part of it. That shift from the Obama administration. I think the only thing she said I thought that was super truthful is like, they didn't pay me, which was really I thought that was a great moment. How did you get her to talk and how did you you know, Chris has been talking a lot, obviously, but how did you get her to because she's a key character here.
6: and I mean, she's integral, but I think um, Kareem would be a better person to okay. answer how he, I got her to talk. But I I will say one thing, you know, I think there's, A, I think there's a lot of truth. And I think also that we're all very quick to judge Brittany. Mm-hmm. But I think we, you know, especially we have to put ourselves in her, her shoes as well. And I think there's a lot of mirrors that Brittany can provide of mm-hmm. who we are um, and her journey where we really she goes on a journey it's not a it, it's, it wasn't a light switch i don 't think at least in in my book, but mm-hmm. um you know we really d- dug deep mm-hmm. through and she was you know very open and um, but she really through her journey we really i think got to through her very intimate journey got through to starting to see who we are and mm-hmm. kind of really show us a mirror of what questions we need to be asking. But, um, Kareem, why
2: don't you how tell did us, you, how, how did you get her to talk? Because what I found most interesting about her is it, it, someone who perpetually lies to themselves is actually telling the truth by accident. Like it was, it was really fast. It was sort of a mind fuck that way. I just couldn't tell what I thought of her. But how did you get her to talk? Because she, you, she, she loved the headlines. You could see her eating up the attention and everything else at the same time, which I thought was. Beautifully done from a photography point of view. You got that sense as she loved being part of the drama at the same time.
4: Well, she was living it. I mean, right. when we met Brittany, she had just basically uh you know decided to begin her process of coming for coming going public. And I uh had been navigating the story for some time. I had met Carol a year uh almost a year and a half before, or a year before, and I'd met Chris Wiley a year before he'd come public, and I'd met mm-hmm. several people in the space, but there was a challenge of getting people on camera at the time to kind of explain what was happening, and we'd even tried to get Facebook to talk about it, and they refused. And um, when I I basically, I, through uh, someone in the documentary film community, Jess mm-hmm. Search, met Paul Hilder, mm-hmm. who was in the film, and he had been in touch with Brittany for some time and had heard that I was kind of this obsessive documentary filmmaker who was really into Cambridge Analytica and was kind of looking through all the nooks and crannies. And then we had a chat. He, it was basically, I was going to the airport and he was leaving the airport and we spoke for 15 minutes and he's like, well, look, if you really want to do this, you got to go to Thailand tomorrow. And I was like, tomorrow. And she's in a pool. And I didn't know where right she now. was. And I was right. like, I got to go see my kids. Right. I can't just go to Thailand. I have three kids under the age somewhere of Somewhere
2: in Thailand, not Thailand. You know,
4: I had to go to, to Egypt and she was in Thailand. And so I called my partner and wife, Jahan, who's also an amazing filmmaker. I was like, so I got to go to Thailand. And she's like, no, you don't. You got to come home. And I was like, I'm telling you, this is real. She's like, it's not.
6: We and, uh, all question uh, the, <laughs> the, the uh, you know, really, should you go to Thailand? Who is this? Brittany anyway. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Is it yeah, just really exactly. worth it? But, exactly. you know, it, it at that time, I think it was really, I have to take my hats off to Kareem who really believed that there is something there. Um, and even if it doesn't lead to anywhere, but it, I think we, we had been digging so long in the space mm-hmm. with... You know, trying to find answers and, and someone who was
4: there. I, I try to find it. No, we're also trying to find a journey because mm-hmm. the way of filmmaking that we follow right. is, is something that's experiential. And so, this is a story where it's so interesting in these articles, you can have all these amazing intellectual debates about it. But why the hell is it a movie? Like, what makes it a movie if it's not experiential? And so, we were looking for people who were actually actively on a journey that wasn't just happening in their Twitter feed, mm-hmm. you know, and I was like in real life. And so here was someone who not only was on an incredible journey, but in Brittany's story, she could take you through the ascent of these technologies. They were used as a tool to inspire hope and change and create one of the most historic elections, the election of Barack Obama, and then used in the total flip side in a very different election where a lot of other kinds of tactics were used in not so hopeful ways but led to equally historic outcomes. And so for one person to embody both, kind of the trajectory of the whole thing, it became an interesting metaphor for how all of us got here. And I think that it's difficult for many people to absorb who Brittany is because we're in the most polarized time of our lives, right? So you don't switch from one uniform to the next. You don't go from blue to red. That's blasphemy. You don't go from remain to leave. That's blasphemy. Yet at the same time, I challenge the audience to ask this question If you don't have redemptive stories in these times, where do you go? Where does the road of polarization take you to civil war or you just make these filter bubbles even more cemented where you don't have to deal with the people you don't like and you don't have to look at the people who challenge you or don't look like you if we don't provide a way for people who have done things that we may question to come out and not only tell us what actually happened but to prove that they too can change then we're no better than anybody that we're judging. So I think it's important to, to, to kind of look at that as we yeah. look across. Yeah.
2: So let me ask you just to, from a director perspective, why did you and, and film one, her in one the pool? One of the okay, things,
4: okay. the, the, the pool was the first interview.
2: Yeah, why I did met you her film on, her in a pool? Because
4: she was in James Bond Island right. and she was in this pool.
3: Right. And
4: I didn't know if I'd never see her again. And, right. and my wife told me, if you don't come back with something, don't come back. Right. So I was like, <laughs> okay, well, if you're willing to talk, let's just do this now. And so I just got in the pool and the DP I'd never worked with was like, really? I'm like, let's just do it. I don't know. What if she changes her mind? So we just started filming. And, you know, in these types of films, as some of the documentary filmmakers here might attest to, like you got to film like every day is your last because you just don't know, you know, you don't know if people are going to change their mind. And I think one thing that we also wanted to show was like, here is, you know, we're these we are these moral creatures who are who are crippled by our morality in many ways, right? It's what holds us back, but it's what also makes us human. But we're being shaped by these algorithms, right? And we're trying to tell a story about how these algorithms are shaping our lives. And so and these are amoral algorithms who aren't crippled by that morality. So here was a character who could also traverse the complexity of morality and cha- take us to different moral choices and show us what it was. So for me, that was also something that was quite... Important um, to capture, and, and and that's why we followed her on this journey.
2: Okay, Julian, I'm checking in again. What were your thoughts on Brittany?
3: I guess the, the parts of this film that that are like a patient and a and a counselor
2: absolutely
3: um uh, an interaction between and and you know i i don't really understand people that go on reality tv shows full stop Mm -hmm. but britney has always been at that end of the spectrum Mm -hmm. it's actually the reason why when the leave.eu campaign said they were going to hire us she was the first to put up her hand and say i'll go on i'll be at the launch with you i think she just likes being out in public Mm
2: -hmm. and her journey here do you think it's truthful
3: I I think I answer that in the film. I I, I do not know why she said a lot of the things that she said. um, And I don't have the key to her mind on this.
2: I see. So everyone you work for is crazy. Like, it seems like you don't know why Andrew said it. Why do you think they did it, though? Do you have any? You work with these people for years.
3: Well, so um, it depends what we're talking about, but, right. you know, we've, we've got Alexander and we've got Brittany going off and making sales presentations on their own. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that they were the only people who knew what they were pitching. Right. Um, I think that she was probably led down the wrong path by Alexander, mm-hmm. but I don't that's, know that. I agree with you on that.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. We're going to take another break now. We'll be back after this with Kareem Amir, Pedro Coase, Julian Wheatland, and Roger
0: McNamee from The Great Hack. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact. Helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely.
2: Roger, um, when we're talking about if we're going to talk to each other, if we're going to get there, some people feel that's the way to go to how to figure ourselves out of this. Other people feel... This is a group of people that are going to continue to game the system and that, that good people lean forward and say, okay, now let's get together. But it's, you know, it's shown to be a bit of an administration who just keeps pushing the boundaries this last week. Uh, same thing with the, with the tweets and everything else. It doesn't stop. The, the constant pr- propaganda machine does not quit. And now it's overt. It's not even, they're not even hiding in lots of well, ways.
5: So the problem that I'm trying to address and has spent, I guess, now three years trying to deal with, is this notion that Silicon Valley has inadvertently created companies that are identical in our economy to what the chemical industry was in 1950. The fastest growing, most profitable companies in the economy, and they are that way because they are not held accountable for the economic externalities that they create. Right? like chemical companies, they would pour mercury into fresh water. That was not a problem. Mine companies would leave tailings on the side of the hill. Petrol stations would pour spent oil into sewers. And there was no accountability for that. And as a consequence, they were artificially profitable. And eventually we caught up to them and said, no, we're going to hold you accountable. These companies are doing toxic digital spills for which they're not being held accountable by my very, very rough estimate, Facebook, if it were held accountable for the things that it has done, would be an unprofitable company and Google would be modestly profitable Mm -hmm. in comparison to today. And I believe that if we do not do something about making companies in the economy generally accountable for the damage they do, the political arguments are going to turn out to be irrelevant. Mm -hmm. I'm completely with Kareem on the issue of I am not interested in litigating the past. I'm not interested in attributing blame. I am interested in solving a problem. and we have lost our sense of uh, civic pride, civic engagement. We are focused on on uh, symbols as opposed to the substance of what it means to be a citizen. And uh, in that context, you know, what I'm hopeful of is that we can, engage with everyone willing to engage and that that group of people ideally can by coming together create enough mass to restore some function to democracy not just here but everywhere that's being affected by this because it's this defaulting to authoritarianism because you can't see a way out of this mess you feel like you're powerless and i'm going that's nonsense i mean Look what this tiny team produced, this amazing Mm -hmm. film, which is going to have this massive ripple effect. And, you know, I look at this and, you know, I mean, Kara, all by yourself, you have shown lights on so many of these problems and it's it's having an effect.
4: Hmm.
5: I mean, we haven't solved any of these problems yet, but all of you are here today. No, but hang on, all of you guys are here today. And, you know, whether you like it or not, you're part of the resistance now because Google and Facebook know you're here with us. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yes. All right, but Roger, in that regard, and I want to I want to finish up with you guys saying what needs to happen. You're saying that, and you, you know you're like whatever. I'm the nag. You're a nag also. I'm a nag. You're a nag. We're nags together. But then
6: Libra. You're snarkier.
2: Yes, I'm a snark. You're a nag. Um, and then Libra and I was like, geez Louise, these guys. They haven't learned a thing, right? Not a thing. You like know, they're going to ruin global currency now. This, Yay! This like, is the, the thing
5: that just drives me absolutely insane." that they're, they're so focused on... In fact, this may be symbolic of a whole cultural problem of everybody being so focused on their own needs that they can't imagine that there might be a flaw in that approach. And I guess, you know, my parents were were, you know, children of the Depression. They went through the Second World War. In the 50s, we began the culture of consumerism, of having consumer packaged goods your way you know, prepared foods and all that. And what Google and Facebook did was they did the same thing for ideas. Have it your way, right? Facebook is 2.3 billion Truman shows and Google is whatever search results you want. And I look at this and I go, you know, I just think democracy and I think personal choice, agency, um, those things are actually incredibly valuable. And you may not realize that till they're gone, right? But we right now are being challenged to decide what we care about, what we believe in, and how much control of our own lives do we want to have? Because Google's strategy is really simple, right? They want to replace free will. They want to replace democracy with algorithmic processes. This is the genius of what of what Professor Shoshana Zuboff has written in her book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. She doesn't just describe how this economic system works. She describes the motivations that created it and inevitably the processes that it will lead to. And we ignore her advice at our peril.
2: Okay, so let's talk about what you want to come out of this. Each of you very shortly, why don't we start with you, Kareem. What is your goal here? What would you like to see happen with the impact of your movie?
4: Just if you're not thinking for yourself, there's an algorithm thinking for you. So start thinking and asking questions.
2: Right, and I also love the way you use sort of uh, endgame with the. That was well done. With people disappearing into their digital dots. Yeah, that's
6: the the genius next All to right. me. I'm just the
2: Pedro. What would you like to see happen?
6: I would like to see more people. Uh, I mean, I'm wondering who are the the next Britney Kaisers? Who are the the next people that are, especially here in, in this community, in this area, in the Bay, in Silicon Valley, um, who are getting a little uncomfortable and and you know and empower them and and you know we as you know we talk about filmmaking as a, a art form you know that requires imagination. Well, I think everything requires imagination. I think it's like imagining what could be what beyond and really challenging that and be, you know. And with the work that you're doing really kind of creating community. Julian? I'd like to see competition.
3: Yeah.
2: And and I'd like
6: to see the tools of competition.
3: So for Facebook and Google, it's different. It's too late. Break them up. Maybe Google, we can break up. We could break Facebook up, but because of the network effect of the platform, I think they end up being regulated as a monopoly utility. But for everybody else, I'd like to see the tools of competition so people can compete on how ethically they use data It'd be transparent, people can understand it and choose whether or not they want to be on that platform, whether whether or not they want to leave their data there.
2: There's one proposal that they share the data, that they share, Facebook and Google share their data so new companies can be created. But competition, I think, is 100% of the way. And then they'll create new companies that later we have to deal with.
3: And they'll make it as hard as possible to share the data as they do now. Right, absolutely. Until someone steps in and makes them do it. Right. Sorry. And the one thing I wanted
4: to say actually about as it relates to data is not the, uh, involuntarily become more of a person speaking on this than I ever imagined. But I think the word that we can borrow from kind of that we're also hearing debated in pop culture actively is the word consent. Mm-hmm. Right, Consent has never been more debated in our society for good reasons, but we should apply that word as it relates to data, as it relates to this relationship with technology, and as it relates to this question of that the admission fee to the connected world is giving up all your privacy without having any idea where it goes and not being aware in each area of your recordable behavior what you're consenting to and what your tolerance is for that kind of exchange. So I think consent should be a key part of design in this, in, in Silicon Valley especially. Well,
2: that'll ruin their business plans. But go ahead, find a Roger short so we can. I, I
5: would like everybody here to go out and seek out every elected representative you can find and get in their grill and ask him why, in God's name. Are companies like Google and Microsoft allowed to scan your emails and your documents and messages for valuable information? Why are banks, credit card processors, and credit rating agencies allowed to sell your most intimate financial data? Why are healthcare uh, service companies allowed to sell data about your healthcare situation? Why are cellular companies allowed to sell your location? Why is anybody allowed to collect data on minors and hold it? Why is anyone allowed to trade any of this stuff? Why are they allowed to exploit it at all? I don't think this is a question of who owns your data. The problem we're dealing with now is that society is being destroyed. It doesn't actually hurt any of us individually. It is killing our country. It is killing the world. It is as likely to cause World War III as anything. There was, a, a, I thought, a terrifying op-ed in The Atlantic by Henry Kissinger and Eric Schmidt in which they said, AI has won, get over it and we're going to apply it to things like national security and diplomacy. I'm going, wait a minute, you're going to take a technology which was perfected on zero-sum games and you're going to apply that to global diplomacy? That yeah. doesn't work, right? It's just I mean, what Henry we, Kissinger and we Eric are Schmidt compl- no, am say. saying, But we, I'm just saying, <laughs> Those we, st- Good we, God. Think. we have to think again, okay? You know what I'm saying? We How did ha- I miss that?
2: That pair. I didn't even want it. Just look at my face. You got to be kidding me. Yeah. Yeah. With Eric Schmidt. Yeah. Two of your faves. Okay. And Henry Kissinger adds icing on top of the toxic cake. Julian, are you going to be in any more movies? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I hope not. What are you doing? What do you do for? I'm curious where you go after Cambridge Analytica.
6: Yeah, me too.
2: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. And what is the next movie you guys are making? Let's finish it up.
6: I'm flashing back to the 1960s um, about a group of incredible um, Catholic nuns who rebelled against the, another structure, the Catholic Church. Oh, um, that one. And are still um, challenging that t- today.
2: I love a Catholic nun story. Good. What are you doing?
4: I'm, I'm making a uh, series on this self-improvement group that uh, turned out to be a cult uh, called Nexium.
2: Oh, them. Oh, Wow, that's nice. both
4: about this and that. Are both about how persuadable and vulnerable. Uh, one of the things someone mentioned about, you know, how you know Cambridge Analytica targeted the persuadables. I think the problem with that question is that it implies that persuadables are one bucket of people. The reality is we're all persuadable. We may not be persuadable on on certain political topics, we're immovable on that, but we're all persuadable, and our minds are a lot more vulnerable. And the sooner we accept that, the better, in my opinion.
2: All right. On that note, thank you so much, Roger, Julian, Pedro, Kareem. And tell everyone about the movie. It's a terrific movie. It's appearing when? When does it appear?
4: Uh, Wednesday. So let everyone know about it. Wednesday. Tweet about it. Let the world know. And thank you for having us. Thank, and thank, you, thank you very you, much. Thank Cara, for oh. continuing to speak truth to power. Oh, well. And fill her justice seats in this court against Facebook. It's important.
2: All right. Thank you so much. Thanks to Kareem, Pedro, Julian, and Roger for coming on the show. And thanks to Letterman Theater for hosting us. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at hey hey ESJ. You can find The Great Hack on Netflix. And make sure, if you haven't already, to listen to my recent interview with Carol Cadwallader, the journalist who exposed a lot of the key developments in the Cambridge Analytica scandal. If you liked this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media, Pivot, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Special thanks to Christine Richardson, Allie McWhorter, and Ken Moynihan. Before we wrap up, I have one more thing to share with you, a special preview of Land of the Giants, a new podcast from Recode and the Vox Media Podcast Network. It's a show about the five major tech companies that have reshaped our world. Each season focuses on one of the giants and explores the ways that they've changed our lives for better and for worse. The first season is about the rise of Amazon and is hosted by Recode's Jason Del Rey, who's covered the company for the better part of the last decade. I'll let him take it from here.
8: Amazon, see, click, buy. Two days later, any product you could possibly imagine is delivered right to your doorstep. Seems simple, right? I'm Jason Del Rey, and I'm the host of Land of the Giants, a new podcast from Recode and the Vox Media Podcast Network. It's about the tech companies that have become so huge, they impact every part of our lives, for better and for worse. Season one is called The Rise of Amazon, We'll be looking at how Jeff Bezos built Amazon from a small online bookseller into one of the most valuable companies in the world, and we'll examine what Amazon is doing with its power. You're about to hear a preview of our first episode. It's about Prime, Amazon's subscription service. Prime already has more than 100 million members worldwide, and you might be one of them. I know I certainly am. Prime is the biggest retail innovation of the internet age. In this episode, we get the inside story of how this risky idea literally started from Jeff Bezos' own boathouse. And then we hear about the six-week rush to bring it to market. While you're listening, go subscribe to Land of the Giants, The Rise of Amazon on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. There's also a link in the episode notes to help you subscribe. When most people think about Amazon Prime, they think of free shipping. The brown boxes plastered with Prime packing tape arriving on their doorsteps. It all feels so easy. But back in 2004, getting Prime up and running was anything but easy. Vijay Ravindran was in charge of much of that operation.
9: There was a lot of pushback. Very prominent people who are at Amazon today and in high positions uh, told me, like, you shouldn't be allowing Jeff to do this, that uh, this is setting a bad example for the company.
8: At the time, Revengeran's job title at Amazon was director of ordering. He ran 20 teams, all working on the website. And before he had ever heard of the idea of Prime, he was already really busy. It was the holiday shopping season, and the site was his biggest problem. Teams working
9: around the clock, that Christmas in particular, Amazon had had some major stability problems that had gotten some pretty big primetime coverage. Basically, the site kept crashing again and again. The peak day was the, the last Monday before Super Saver Shipping's window ended, where you could still get
8: your package in before Christmas. Super Saver Shipping, remember that? Back then, you could only get free shipping if you bought $25 worth of products. And still, you might have to wait as long as 10 business days for your delivery. And so, it was the week before peak. It's early December, and in retail, that was the busiest time of the year. And Ravindran and his team were in firefighting mode, just trying to keep the site running. It was, you know, Thursday night, and uh,
9: Jeff Bezos sent a note to uh, my immediate supervisor at the time, who was the SVP for consumer, and they said, "Hey, I want to get get people from ordering together. We need to meet tomorrow." Hmm. So that so that was the uh, the first hint. This was not standard operating procedure at Amazon. To present to Jeff would be maybe a once every six month type thing for someone at my level, uh, and. For an impromptu request to meet that didn't have weeks of preparation prior was very
8: rare. And there were no clues that would tell Ravindran what this meeting was really about. Remember, he was already overwhelmed with work. And now he's being pulled away for some unknown project. The meeting was scheduled for Friday
9: afternoon. Friday morning rolls around and the website has a multi-hour crash.
8: (laughs) Obviously, this was terrible timing. And after Revenger's team gets the site back up and running, their work still wasn't done. Postmortems are an important part of Amazon's culture. This basically means whenever anything big goes wrong, you have to quickly meet as a team to figure out what went wrong. And so um,
9: I don't know how many other people have done this uh, at my level at Amazon, but I, we canceled the meeting with Jeff from wow. our side. And so then kind of the legend of Prime kind of starts because his response was, of course, I understand – but this is so important. You have to come over to my house on Saturday morning. So fr- the Friday meeting is canceled, but he says essentially it can't wait another day. That's right. You have to come in Saturday. And you have to come to my house uh, to, to this meeting.
8: Had you ever been to his house before that? I had not. Okay. And so what do you think when you hear uh, come to my house on a Saturday? I mean, it's,
9: it's so hard to even think about what it could be. And... I think part of the back of my mind is, surely whatever this is, he's not going to to create an incredible workload on the team while we're basically firefighting, keeping the site up during Christmas. And so then we arrive at his house. We actually are sent to his boathouse. I still have not been in
8: his house, per se. I've been in his boathouse. So the setting for this crucial meeting was Saturday morning with a small group of Amazon staff. I mean, the boathouse was
9: larger than my condo, and uh, and had a fully uh, enclosed parking space for his boat, so it was pretty cool. Um, and uh, and then he he joins us and leads with, "This is the most important project I think we're gonna be doing in a while. That this is a really big idea. I need I need a team that's gonna treat this with with high urgency." And then we get into the conversation about what it is,
8: what it was, or what it turned out to be was Amazon Prime. Codename inside Amazon, Futurama. It would become the biggest retail innovation of the internet age. Jeff Bezos wanted to create a subscription service around Amazon's best customers, and he wanted it ASAP.
9: This was all about getting people into a mode where they thought about Amazon first, they bought on Amazon because it was convenient, that they knew that they were getting a reasonably good deal, but that they were getting out of this mentality of uh, penny-pinching.
8: This is the idea we heard earlier, of building a moat around customers. To be clear, it's not about keeping people out. It's about keeping the best customers locked in. And part of the idea is that Prime members would pay for that luxury. Revengerin remembers that Bezos felt strongly about what it should cost customers.
9: Jeff was really clear on his instinct here, which was that The price needed to be high enough that people thought about it on an ongoing basis rather than something trivial that they didn't think about. But it needed to be low enough
8: that they would want to try it out. And by the way, the price they actually chose when Prime launched was $79 a year. For the nerds inside of Amazon, it was happily a Prime number. But back to the crazy days before that launch. For Ravindran, the idea was exciting. But the timing certainly was not. At the boathouse meeting, Bezos told the group he wanted to have Prime ready for the company's next earnings call with Wall Street investors. The problem was that call was just a little more than a month away, in January of 2005. So the group told Bezos that his timeline was almost impossible. Bezos, in turn, gave them a little more time. He moved back the earnings call by a week or two. And it gave them the power to pull in any staff member from any division of Amazon. Because this was complicated work. They had to figure out how to make Prime function on the website, then how to describe it to customers, and then how to get customers to sign up. And they had to pull all-nighters and steal employees from other departments just to make it happen.
9: It was ugly work. It was the kind of work that you don't want to have to do. And...
8: And the reaction from people?
9: It was, it was very mixed. I think some people, because it was a Jeff project and they hadn't been on one,
8: were extremely excited. Others, not so much. There was a lot of angst. One engineer told an executive he was scared that Prime would even take down the company. One of the things that also is just hard to imagine
9: back then is that, you know, there wasn't... Blind faith that every Jeff idea was going to be a home run.
10: You know, I don't know that anyone sat down and said, Prime membership is going to be like our winner.
8: That's Andrea Lay. She's the one who helped run Prime in Canada. She says in those days, Amazon was basically an ideas factory. And many of those ideas, eh, they weren't good. I mean, Amazon was throwing all kinds of stuff at the wall to see what sticks.
10: They still do. I mean, I've worked on projects there where we had two or three teams working on kind of different
8: variations of it just to see what would stick. So Prime was a huge bet for Bezos, and it was mostly instinct.
10: It's hard to put ourselves back (laughs) in that year, but at that time, we did not know the form of e-commerce that was going to take off.
8: And remember, the world looked really, really different back then. Amazon's biggest competition, well there was eBay, which actually at that point was worth almost twice as much as Amazon. And then there were the physical stores,
10: Barnes and Noble and Borders and Best Buy and Babies R Us and Toys R Us. And so the idea was how do we get consumers products faster? How do we actually compete with the amount of time that it would take you to get in your car and go over
8: to a store? So the speed of Prime shipping was crucial, but we also had this problem with toilets. It's not that easy to just ship anything. Toilets often ship into
10: boxes. So sometimes customers would get like half of a toilet and then it would be broken because they're really easy to break unless you do a lot of work to make sure that they don't break. So toilets were always kind of a a little bit of a joke
8: internally. The point is Amazon couldn't create Prime if it couldn't solve all these mundane problems like how to ship a toilet reliably and quickly to make customers happy.
10: I think it represents just this relentless customer focus and doing whatever you had to do to delight the customer.
8: Customer focus and customer delight. Whenever I talk to former or current Amazon employees, this is a central idea that comes up. In fact, the number one Amazon leadership principle is something called, quote, customer obsession, and it all springs directly from the mind of Jeff Bezos.
5: The first thing I know is that you need to obsess over customers. Uh, I can tell you that we have been doing this from the very beginning, and it's the only reason that Amazon.com exists today in any form. When we talk about Earth's most customer-centric company, we have a similar idea in mind. We want other companies to look at Amazon and see us as a standard bearer for obsessive focus on the
8: customer as opposed to obsessive focus on the competitor. I know what you might be thinking. Doesn't every company say stuff like this? It's true, they do. But Jeff Bezos really walks the walk, no matter the consequences. So that was just the preview. To hear the full story, subscribe to Land of the Giants on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app.